0: This is the hidden provision in the IRA that if you don't do your homework and you actually sit down and force yourself to read it, uh, you're not going to really understand it.
1: These are grants, not loans, correct? We've been talking
0: about grants the whole time. The tax credit you get from the federal government is 10% of your operating cost, potentially all the way back to the mine. Do
1: you have a view on what the what the characteristics of the the kind of projects that'll be the biggest beneficiaries of all these acts are? What, I
2: want to just pin into that foreign entity of concern. We've got a lot of lithium projects that there's a joint venture arrangement between an Australian miner and a and a Chinese company.
1: Why don't we talk about the uh, Section 45X as well? Mining companies that you know we, we speak about on the show, Syrah, Linus, Gervois, the implications of this one can be quite enormous, can't they?
2: What you agree with Rossi on and particularly what you disagree with him on? Pretty much everything he said. <laughs> I mean, legend. Uh, I want to know how I can
0: invest in this fund. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, it's that? closed. <laughs> <laughs>
1: G'day, money miners. Wednesday, twenty fifth of October. Why do we say the date? Just so people know they're listening to the right episode. At <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of a better it's reason. Like,
2: it's like saying the um, today the gold price is.
1: We don't want it, you know. Well, we're, we're timely, mate. We're on the news and stuff. <laughs> anyway, we've got a we've got a pretty cool interview in store for the money miners today. We had a sit down with Todd Milan. So. Mm-hmm. Todd's got, you know, he's got a wealth of experience. He's an American. He's Mm -hmm. based in America. Based in Washington for
2: 30 years. Yep. Interfacing with uh, the intersection of like government and mining there. And it's a different kind of interview to what we'd normally do, but we think the underlying theme is hyper important for our listeners to be across because we kind of consider the policy settings and the geopolitical dynamics right now as being a really – a really important driver in, in commodity markets to come.
1: Yeah. And and some people might think, you know, oh, we're going to talk about the IRA, we're going to talk about legislation and acts. And that's a that's a bit boring. But it's absolutely absolutely not the case. It's just as important as, you know, your your commodity price going up. The implications, the the grants, the loans, the tax credits, the incentives are just, you know, they're they're phenomenal. You you can't underline that enough and especially for the you know the managing directors and the decision makers of companies out there they should really tune in because some of the incentives available to junior miners you know mid cap miners producers out there even in australia uh, even in australia they're attainable they're achievable you can you can touch them you can get them and it's coming it's coming fast you know we're going to yeah. be hearing a whole lot more about this if you if you haven't heard enough about it just yet and yeah. it goes beyond just the the seven and a half thousand dollars that you might have heard, if you are buying a new electric vehicle, there is so much more to it, right? Yeah, and I think
2: the other other thing I think our listeners should be like clued into JD is if you if you suddenly like if government the if US government is now massively subsidising certain industries, and those industries flow all the way through to mining. If those if the cost dynamics of um, of miners are massively subsidised, then what does that mean for investment opportunities for our listeners as it relates to the types of projects. You know, the, let's think of the projects that you used to just look at and think, oh, IRR shit, the CapEx is too high. You know, suddenly they those kinds of projects might actually, um, but you have to look at them again.
1: They are flipped on their head. Some of the grants, 30% off, you know, building a processing plant and these sorts of things. Yeah. It flips the MPV, the yeah. IRR on its head. And your op it's its 10, 10% head. off. Like, anyway, all this all this stuff. Incredible. Kind of, I think we have to kind of, yeah, be
2: astute to the fact that some projects which we used to just write off might become relevant um, and
1: that's an opportunity for our audience to, to be clued into. It, it sure is and it could be that the market hasn't totally cottoned onto it. In, in a big enough fashion already. So there, there could be opportunities in, in more that ways than one, depending on the, the sort of lens you look at the market upon.
2: And no better to unpack it than Todd Milan, ex-Goldman Sachs, ex-Rio Tinto, um, interfaces with government all the time in Washington. And um, I'm really, uh, yeah, I, I took a lot away from this chat, JD.
1: Absolutely. Okay, let's, let's get to it, mate. And before we get into the interview, we've got to thank our sponsors at K-Drill, so as uh, as Maddie would say at Ryan O'Sullivan, he's gonna he's gonna get the rock with his hand, get it out. No need for the for the drill rig. So K drill, they are the kings of R C drilling, isn't that right, Trev? Yeah, mate, they've
2: got a, a bunch of rigs. Um, I think they're all deployed at the moment, their rigs. I I know that they're drilling at manor at the moment. I've um yep. yeah, seen photos photos of that happening. So, mate, bloody lithium, they're doing gold, they're drilling everything. I think their rigs are sort of spread across WA at the moment. Um and they're going absolutely bonkers, drilling um, new discoveries and also existing discoveries. Got to do the infill, got to do the, the extensional work,
1: mate. But That's bye. it, mate. And as as Matty hasn't shied away from, from saying, you know, Ryan and the team, you know, they're friendly, they're approachable. Get in touch with them. If you need RC drilling at, you know, your exploration site or whatever it is, get in touch with the guys. They'll, they'll do you a great deal and they'll get the job done, safe, reliable, mm. and, you know, Maybe not with their hands, but with the best rigs out there, hey? <laughs> Thanks, k <K-Drew. laughs> Here's our chat with uh, Todd Milan. G'day, Money Miners. We
2: are uh, stoked today to bring a bit of a different voice to the podcast to ones that we would have heard in the past. Normally, we're deep in the world of mining companies. Um, you know, we, we do talk about the sectors. We speak to fund managers all the time. Today is a bit different, JD. We're not speaking to a... A fund manager. We're not speaking to someone who can help us understand the technical realities of um of the mining industry better. We're speaking to someone who can help us understand the policy landscape better, which is a bit of an abstract uh, abstract topic, but we think it's an important one and one that we really need to wrap
1: our heads around at this point in time. It sure is, mate. And on the back of the uh, discussion we'd had with Rusty Delroy not too long ago, this one really fits in. We're going to be talking about the the various you know alphabet soups of policies coming out of in particular in this conversation the US but as well you know there are policies being enacted in Europe there's talk of policies being enacted here in Australia and we're going to try and make sense of all of it and really hone in on just how impactful how meaningful how big the the dollar values that we're talking about are in a in a way that really makes sense to the money miners out there
2: in a hunt for an expert on this topic We've uh, we've come across Mr. Todd Milan. Todd, am I saying your surname right? Is it Milan? I'm I'm saying that wrong, aren't I? Uh, well, yeah. Lots of uh, in South Africa, it's
0: uh, Milan, and uh, in, in the US, we uh, pronounce it Malan,
2: But uh, Malin. <laughs> you can do it either way. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll go with you. US, um, uh, yeah, misappropriation of the pronunciation. Uh, Todd Malin, welcome to Money of Mine. How are you? All the way from um, Pennsylvania right now, but normally you're based in Washington DC. Thank you for mm-hmm. dialing into our Perth-based mining show.
0: Actually, I'm in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. uh, Michigan, sorry, mate. (laughs) Historic uh, copper uh, districts in the United States. So yeah, I'm in Marquette, Michigan, Um, and uh, and good day. Good good day, indeed,
2: mate.
1: Um, Beautiful. Thanks for tuning in. the uh, The time difference for a lot of the calls we've done with people in the US is, you know, horrendous one way or another. And we appreciate the uh, the sacrifice you're making at 10 p.m. your time to to jump on the show and. You know, you mentioned where you're coming from—the you know traditional mining areas in America—and we're going to get into that in in a big way later on in the chat as well. Todd, I'll set the scene on on um on
2: why you know we think you're a voice that can help help us unpack um some of some of the some of the policy landscape at the moment. You've spent the last 30 years based in Washington. A lot of that has been at the intersection of of government policy as it relates to the mining industry. Five of those years were with Goldman Sachs. Nine of them were with Rio Tinto, where your interface with government largely related to their aluminium business, as I understand it. Um, these days, you've got a role at Talent Metals a Nickel Developer, which has won a disproportionately large dollar value of government funding, um, as I interpret it. There's a $114 million grant of, um, for a battery minerals processing facility in North Dakota, and very recently, a $20 million free kick from the Department of Defence for, wait for it, Expiration, mate, nickel expiration. Mm. Imagine Department of Defense giving, giving you 20 million bucks for funds funding. It's, and <laughs> it's
1: not the first of that kind that we've yeah. seen either. No. And um,
2: there's a, a whole bunch of this sort of, um, yeah, the government landscape is motivated by these um, these drivers we're going to talk about with Todd and Todd's going to help us understand them. And, and there's some serious relevance to the Australian investment landscape because a lot of this funding um, flows through to Australian companies and um, and, and even and so the savvy MD should really be paying attention because Todd's going to help them understand how they might be able to get some of this um, some of this funding as well. So thank you very much, Todd, for uh, helping us kind of debunk um, what seems like a little bit of a mystery to us.
0: No, happy to do it, and uh, you know, i have spent a lot of time in Australia in my career, both at Goldman and then at Rio Tinto, and uh, was on the uh, board of the American Australian Association for about. Seven years. So, uh, yeah, let's dive in. I mean, on the eve of uh, the prime minister uh, is uh, going to be in the White House tomorrow uh, talking about critical minerals and then uh, enjoying a a state dinner with President Biden. And uh, apparently the B-52s will be uh, offering
2: entertainment the
1: b 52s there wow. you go as timely as ever money of <laughs> mine so why don't we why don't we start in sort of broad strokes Todd and talk about why we are speaking about this right now so you've the, the way we sort of see it there's a couple of big moves and changes happening globally and one that's the energy transition and two that's you know deglobalization or geopolitics becoming more of a topic than they have in in a long time. How do you sort of frame the the discussion when you you have these conversations about why this is so prominent now? So I
0: think there's two big macro drivers that are happening at the same time. Um, It's a very bipartisan sort of set of drivers. Number one is this realization coming out of COVID that security of supply is really important. That if you lose security of supply in crucial, defense pro- platforms, uh, in, in, in technology, um, you're really vulnerable. And then you have this other big trend where you have this drive towards clean energy. And some of that is not bipartisan, but in, uh, in many ways it, it can be uh, bipartisan. But certainly we saw the IRA move forward to advance and try to scale up clean energy systems. And I think that the way the International Energy Agency thinks about this is actually really smart, which is to say we're moving as a society, sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly, from a fossil fuel-centered energy system to a mineral-based energy system. So I think of those as two things happening at the same time. Big push for security supply, big push for clean energy systems, and that what's Lead you to um, this alphabet soup, um, which is bipartisan infrastructure law, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Defense Production Act, um, Exim Bank, and um, other institutions within the U- U.S. government influence that are going to be financing projects both in the United States, in Australia, around the world. So I think that from the perspective of Australian investors in this sector, you got to do your homework about the alphabet soup and unpack it to understand how it may affect projects in Australia, projects in the United States, and projects elsewhere in the world. And it goes back to what Rusty was talking about, which I really love, which is this idea that provenance is going to be a big driver in the future in terms of consumer choice, uh, and, um, qualitative factors about how something was produced is going to command a premium. Um, it's not all there yet, but I think we, it, it it is absolutely, I'm absolutely convinced it's going to get there. The, the,
2: the, the whole transition of, of mining becoming energy is, is a narrative that's pretty well understood, um, um, you know, by the the Australian mining investment universe, the the piece that I think um, you know people are kind of a grap- still still kind of you know working to understand the true implications of is is the the geopolitical imperative to to reshore um, a lot of these supply chains and the the real kind of dynamics in relate you know the relationships with China that are informing that um, you know from your you know purview in in Washington, um, what's your interpretation of those? geopolitical motivations and how do they flow through to this world?
0: You know, I think people want to put it in this sort of contest, this this geopolitical China versus the world, China versus the West. You know, I actually think it just goes back to security supply. It's perfectly rational that any country wants to not be completely dependent on another country for a major source of, uh, of energy. Um, and the Chinese have actually... Um, and Rusty touched on this as well, you know, done a very good job with their mineral policy, investing strategically in refining capability, forcing companies that are focused on a primary material. Look at gallium. You know, gallium has been in the news um, that Chinese basically control uh, probably 90 percent of the world's gallium that goes into gallium nitride uh, uh, semiconductors, which is the newest form of of semiconductor technology. Um, How do they do that? Well, they basically make every alumina uh, refinery that the Chinese own um, extract gallium out of the Bayer liquor um, that is the process of producing, you know, turning bauxite into uh, alumina. Um, So they've got a strategic policy that says, we want gallium, we want to control gallium, you will obtain this for us.
1: There was a, uh, a quote in one of the articles you sent us, and that was a bit of background reading. And I'm going to read it out because it sort of helps us tease out the, the, the legislation and all the acts in quite a good way. The IRA incentives for nearly every stage of battery production and the IRA supply chain are very attractive. And since they stack up on top of each other, the IRA is likely to stimulate a gold rush of sorts in battery mineral mining. How do you sort of, is that, you know, replicate how you feel about it as well, Todd?
0: I don't know whether I'd use the term gold rush. Um, That's a bit of of (laughs) hyperbole. I think what, what, what I'd look at the IRA is it has, Two big goals, it wants to invest in and provide the resources and the policy drivers for getting clean energy systems to scale, so wind, solar, batteries, uh, hydrogen, um, also carbon, uh, removal and carbon storage. But then it also um, has an imperative around security of supply. So if you look at the $7,500 tax credit per electric vehicle that was put in place by the IRA, it also has a requirement that the materials that go into that battery be sourced from countries that have free trade agreements with the United States or in the United States. So that's domestic mining, domestic recycling, and sourcing from allies like Australia, Canada, um, Morocco, uh, Chile, all who are mineral rich and have free trade agreements and producing common standards with the United States. That's kind of the idea, but that goes to Rusty's idea, provenance counts in these policies. Um, but then I think you have to actually say, okay, so there's this preference that's being put in place, but then there's also these tax credits, which are meant to incentivize investment and private sector action. So I think that what Congress has done in the IRA and what the Biden administration has done in the IRA is they've said, we've told you the direction we want you to go, and we're going to make you the resources available to make it happen.
2: Todd, before we, um, before we tease out you know these, um, the, the, these le- the legislation that, that is going to inform the, the the markets that we we all care about, um, you know section the sections that matter. I'd love I'd love to just kind of you know recap your thoughts, having having kind of watched the um the interview with with Rusty where he kind of advocates for for metal market price bifurcation to reflect the the uh the inputs that, that go into producing them. You know I I'd I'd love to tease out what you agree with Rusty on and particularly what you disagree with him on. Pretty much everything he said.
0: I mean, legend. Uh, I want to know how I can invest in this fund. Um, Unfortunately, it's closed. (laughs)
2: Um,
0: But, you know, I I, I really like what he said about why shouldn't the mining industry that's producing things at a higher standard, whether that's energy intensity uh, produced at higher labor standards... um, Um, higher environmental protections, um, rules around indigenous participation, why shouldn't that command a premium um, in terms of those production standards as opposed to things that have just been done the old-fashioned way, which is just as cheap as you possibly can? Uh, And none of those environmental or or societal externalities are accounted for. Um, So I think the industry, I think government, Needs to do more. I completely agree with 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 Rusty about that. We're starting to see some policies that I think are interesting in that regard. You're seeing Europe think about a carbon border tax. Uh, we're seeing that actually proposed in the U.S. Congress as well um, to actually say, well, things that are produced with lower carbon should um, face you know, a a better market or a a price differential. Um, Same thing within the U.S. You see governments, state governments, state of California, others actually starting to implement government procurement policies that favor uh, low CO2 inputs. Um, So that's primarily focused on steel and aluminum, but it could be in any number of areas where, governments are implementing what they're calling buy clean
1: policies. Todd, why don't we get into this this alphabet soup now? So you mentioned previously the, the various um, acts that have come about over the past couple of years. We're going to start with the Inflation Reduction Act, and I think that's the the most meaningful one to to the listeners. This gets broken down into three sections that really matter for us. So I want to start with Section 30D. And this might be the one that's most familiar to a lot of the people out there. So this one's been sort of termed the new clean vehicle tax credit. So a 7500 dollar subsidy for consumers buying an electric vehicle in, in simple terms. Can you sort of flesh out all the intricate details of this one in a, in a way that the, um, the money miners really understand why this is such a big deal?
0: Yeah, uh, I'll I'll break it down. I mean, there's more detail than I want to go into that you probably need to do some homework on because there are limitations about who gets the benefit and uh, like what your income level is and some details there that that, that really aren't material. But, you know, half of that $7,500 tax credit um, is basically reserved for measurements of where the material comes from. Is it coming from the US? Is it coming from recycling in the US? Is it coming from our free trade I- allies? And in order to qualify, and basically car manufacturers are going to have to say and warrant to the IRS, this car qualifies under your rules, you're going to have to meet basically a stair step of increasing percentages of material that's sourced from domestic or allied. Uh, uh, sources. And those allies are basically defined by those countries that have free trade agreements with the United States. And right now, there's 17 countries that have free trade agreements with the United States. And that also, you know, there's some, you know, uh, whinging from the auto industry about this, but uh, that they might not be able to actually secure enough material to be able to scale up. Um, you know, I don't think that's true. I think that, you um, the countries that have free trade agreements with the United States are also countries with enormous reserves of battery materials. Um, Just look at uh, Canada, just look at Australia, um, look at Chile. And then there's countries that actually have very strong uh, processing capability, Japan, South Korea. So, um, uh, you know, this is something where I think it is possible but it does create a unique opportunity for countries that are already inside the qualification, like Australia, to um, rise to the occasion, expand existing mines, expand uh, existing processing. I mean, I look at after the IRA, Albemarle doubled the size of their lithium hydroxide plant in Australia. So hopefully, if this, this preference stays intact, people will be able to make investment decisions and actually rise to the occasion to meet the demand inside this this requirement. Um, So Section 30D is really important in that sort of requirement that in order to get the benefit, you have to prove that you've met the requirements of this stair step of critical minerals going into the battery. But then also very importantly, there's a requirement that the battery and the sourcing of materials didn't come from a country or companies from a country that is known as foreign entities of concern, and the countries where uh, generally it's known as the the, the 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 countries that are on that list are Russia, China, North Korea. I'm going to forget the fourth one, but it's not a, a battery powerhouse. Um, but you know. Those rules are not in place yet, so the, the Treasury has not actually issued those rules yet. Um, that will happen before the end of the year. That will tell us a lot about how strict this rule will be around making sure that batteries and um, battery materials are not sourced from companies uh, from these foreign energy of concern um, uh, uh, uh distinctions. Um, if you look at the rules in the CHIPS Act, so same provisions that you know restricted away from foreign entities of concern, um, uh, they were very, very tough. Uh, the Biden administration put in a 20% uh, restriction on uh, the ownership of a company uh, from uh, China or, or Russia, and um, and then also, they put in very tough audit and clawback measures. So in this 30D context, if there is audit and clawback measures, you can imagine that nobody's going to want to run the risk of having to repay all of the $7,500 tax credits that have been um, uh, given out in a given year on a particular auto if they are worried that you know somehow there's Xinjiang uh, lithium in that battery. So I think what it will really force people to do is really know their supply chain in the battery all the way back
1: to the mine. So Todd, the, the theme threat, your, your answer there was traceability. Do you think we're at, we're at a level right now where the, the traceability can be done to a, a high enough standard to, to implement all of this?
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, there's a number of technology companies uh, that are out there with traceability uh, solutions, Uh, One of my favorite is uh, Circular, um, based out of the UK. Uh, They have a really robust uh, ability to to track and trace. Um, As somebody who's developing a nickel mine in the United States, it's absolutely vital to our franchise, our our brand proposition that we offer to our customers like Tesla and others, um, a tracing solution that will work with their systems and also work with Lifecycle and, and Redwood or other recyclers out there. It's absolutely something that we've got to be able to offer to the end customer, that they can know where that material was from and um, um, uh, you know what the standards were that it was produced under. Um, uh, I used to work at Rio Tinto. I think Rio Tinto has a great aluminum brand out there start uh, responsible aluminum that offers that traceability all the way back from the box at mine all the way through to an aluminum can or a, a an apple phone uh they'll be able to offer that and uh, so it's absolutely happening now in the real world and uh, and companies like circular are going to give those solutions
2: it's this um section 30d which which I, you know like that that um i guess the eligibility of it of a tax credit for materials sourced from certain countries um, is, I guess, I guess the most clear and distinct clear-cut policy that I think, um, you know, you can point to as a rationale for a lot of the discussion around price bifurcation at the moment. You know, the, these um, critical minerals from these jurisdictions will be eligible for this very clear tax subsidy in um, this huge industry that's looking to be reshored in, in the US. But my my question is, doesn't that all kind of hinge on the $7,500 subsidy being enough to actually equalize the competition versus, you know, the BYDs that we're seeing come out of China? And and to the best of my knowledge, they're on a relative basis, you know, producing equal, um, you know, cars, but but much cheaper than $7,500 cheaper.
0: Yeah, I don't think we've seen that much um, uh – incursion of um, Chinese imported vehicles into the United States. Um, there's a very steep tariff on uh, imported Chinese vehicles. So I don't think that that's going yeah. to they're, they're able that, you know, they are producing cars more cheaply. Um, they're producing quality cars. Um, but I think there is this um, uh, barrier to uh, getting in the North American market. I think the exception, though, is Geely. Who own uh, Volvo and Polestar, and they're producing vehicles in the United States. So they're they're basically emulating what the uh, Chinese and South Korean cars have done, and actually invested in the United States, um, invested in brands that Americans know, and and that is one way that they're being quite successful. So if you look at Polestar, if you look at Volvo, you know they're producing vehicles in South Carolina.
1: Why don't we talk about the uh, Section forty five X as well? And I'd heard you speak about this one previously. And I mean, a couple of the details really, really blew my mind. The, uh, the no sunset clause on this one is astounding, really. Why don't you, um, you know, explain to, to the listener what this really means for mining companies that, you know, we, we speak about on the show, Syrah, Linus, Jevoir and stuff. There's, there's a few more. It, the, the implications of this one can be quite enormous, can't they?
0: Yeah, this is the, hidden provision in the IRA um, that if you don't do your homework and you actually sit down and force yourself to read it, uh, you're not going to really understand it. Um, And you probably have to read it a couple times because it may not, you may not think it's actually real. (laughs) Um, I, I, I think 45X is basically a production incentive. So it only applies to operations in the United States um so from an investor standpoint it's um companies that are developing projects in the United States and it provides incentives to operations to produce um you know solar panels batteries um wind turbines uh, uh hydrogen electrolyzers so it's all of the machinery all of the systems that go into clean energy, and there are individual tax credits for each area. But the sneaker that Senator Manchin from West Virginia um, put in as part of his big grand deal with President Biden to move the IRA forward um, was to add in critical minerals. And the provision in critical minerals is a a very um, helpful incentive. So it basically lists 50 critical minerals. And it says, if you produce these critical minerals to a certain level of purity, the tax credit you get from the federal government is 10% of your operating cost back as a tax credit to the entity that is doing the refining and potentially all the way back to the mine. We're waiting on guidelines from the Treasury Department. Um, So the law is a little bit opaque as to who gets to claim the tax credit. And remember, these tax credits apply to people whether you have a a tax liability or not. So they're direct pay, and it doesn't matter whether you have a liability or not. So you basically put a calculation of 10% of your operating costs down on your tax uh, uh, form, and you get that back in the in the form of a, a tax credit. That's a big um, boost to how projects pencil out, um, and we think that it's going to be transformative in a whole range of areas. And again, they basically put you know an el- periodic table of elements in the law that has very specific uh, requirements. So if you think about you know, a a Syrah's uh, operation in Louisiana processing uh, graphite, Um, you know, that is going to be eligible for um, part of the 45X tax credit. Now, there is a provision in 40X that says that only production in the United States can count in the calculation of operating costs. Um, So it's unclear whether raw material sourced from outside the United States Will count in your calculation of your operating cost, um, but we'll see that very soon, probably by the end of the year, from uh, the IRS as to how that 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 particular um, decision is made. But you know, even if you're just talking about um, energy and um, uh, employee cost, um, that can be a very important uh, benefit um, for people that are thinking about. Investing in and in refining in the United States. Um, the other thing that's really remarkable about it is it has no end; it has no sunset. All the other provisions for solar and wind and other things like that, they basically start to trail off in 2032 or 2034, um, and they sort of uh, wind down. This one has no uh, sunset, so it'll take an act of Congress in the future to actually end that that benefit.
2: It's fascinating, Todd. Normally we um, talk about mining companies and we, we look at their cash flow statements and so often you see um you see what is OpEx categorized as CapEx to kind of, you know Hide the fact that they're losing money, right? And um, this policy, you'll actually see the reverse. People trying to <laughs> more encouraged to classify the capex as opex because they get ten percent free kick for, for doing so. Um, but yeah, like a ten percent, a ten percent subset, ten percent of your opex just back as a bloody tax credit is um, a pretty astounding,
1: a pretty astounding um, uh, policy. There, it, it's huge. I, I had yeah. one sort of follow up on that, Todd. And I appreciate what you said that the it hasn't been so a lot of you know, fully fleshed out in all the detail. There hasn't been a real precedent set, if you like, but how would it work in the, in the sort of inverse of the example you gave with SIRA, with the operations outside of the US coming for downstream inside of the US? Imagine you have a mine in the US, so the upstream components done the US, would they have to prove that it's gone, you know, sent to another company downstream, all happening within the US to be available to, to get that grant? Or would they have to be the ones that build the downstream facility?
0: Yeah, you're going to have to do the the end process, basically getting it to 99.1% purity is going to have to happen in the US in order to get the benefit. Um, the, the the sort of jump ball is, will it be only domestic raw material that account in the calculation or will non Uh, U.S. uh, raw material count in the calculation. Um, And that'll be a decision that the Treasury Department will announce again before the end of the year. Um, So this is pretty much a benefit only for investors and operators in the United States. It could be a demand pull for Australian lithium or Australian nickel um, if they allow uh, material from uh, non-U.S. sources to count in the in
2: the calculation. Yeah, one one of the implications of this policy that I, I can think of um, is the inability of of um, countries like Australia for example to have a competitive advantage in that downstream refining element versus the United States because it's this massive massive, massive incentive for it to, to go to the US for for the downstream refining instead I think I think so but I mean
0: I, I you know I mean I, I I'm not a hundred percent sure that that'll 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 really hurt Australia as much as it hurts Mexico and Canada if you were thinking about putting a, uh you know lithium refinery in the in North America because of 45x it just became crystal clear that you're going to do it in the U.S. you're not going to consider Mexico or Canada
2: yeah, there are other opex considerations of doing it in Australia, I guess, but you can you can um, it puts into perspective the <laughs> some of the rhetoric you see from um, the leaders of,
1: of, of giant uh, businesses here advocating for more government support for downstream. But um, yeah, and there's one more section, Todd. We've alluded to three. The third one being Section 48C. So <laughs> this sort of relates to a 30% investment tax credit. I think you've previously said that it's capped at US 10 billion. With an interesting sort of carve out for uh, $4 billion of the 10 having to be done within coal country, I assume this has a lot to do with the, uh, the Senator Joe Manchin you mentioned of West Virginia being of West Virginia. Can you sort of flesh out for us how this one looks and what these sort of implications are for you know, the companies looking to get the benefits of this one?
0: Yeah, so this one is capped, so it's only got ten million. So it's competitive to actually apply for it, and that's going on right now. The the, the I think the deadline is passed, um, but um, ten billion dollars. It's a thirty percent um, incentive of the cost of building the project, whether that's a solar manufacturing facility or uh, a critical mineral refinery. Um, all of those things are eligible. Um, you get basically bonus points if you're citing that within what they call coal country. So that's a place where a, a, a coal mine is closed or a coal-fired power plant is closed. They're trying to make sure that that in this energy transition they don't leave people behind. And I think that you know it's definitely something that Senator Man- Manchin wanted to do. But I've heard uh, President Biden be quite passionate about making sure that we don't leave people working people behind um, in the energy transition. So I think there was pretty good alignment about this. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how they make the choices, because, again, you'll you'll there'll be a big reveal and you'll see who gets what. And is it more in solar? Is it more in hydrogen? Um, uh, and again, it's in this manufact. This is the manufacturing incentive. So it's all about building factories to do these things. And critical minerals are absolutely part of it. The rub is, though, if you take 48C, you can't qualify for 45X. So if you think about critical minerals, 30% of your construction costs of your facility versus 10% per year, per year of your operating costs back in a tax credit without any end, it's a, it's a pretty easy choice as to which one's Um, more uh, uh, beneficial to in the critical lender
1: space. But you have the the overhanging factor of you not knowing when they might can that that sunset clause. They're playing games with you guys.
0: But but, but the one thing, you know, there's a lot of people talking about how the Republicans might change the IRA if they um, uh, gain power. And, you know, I'm one of the people that thinks that uh, I don't see it being changed in a root and branch fashion. Um, you know, I think that so much has gone into the red states from uh, the IRA. Um, that's going to be very, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of Republican governors that are going to resist unwinding that. Um, you know, if President Trump becomes uh, president, you know, um, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he just rebranded it the uh you know Trump China policy, <laughs> um, and um, and 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 changed it uh, around the margins. But I certainly think that w- one of the places that would be the last to be changed would be the policies that are in the critical mineral space, because again, that's just a place where we have very broad bipartisan agreement.
2: Let's um let's move on from the Inflation Reduction Act now, Todd, and um, peek over peek over to the the the. The rest of the uh, alphabet soup, I know you've done a deep dive on all of it as it relates to United States. Um, so let's look at the, the Defence Production Act. I think, yep. you, you know, at a, at a broad brush level, um, over a billion dollars in, in funding, um, critical minerals, a big part of that, and um, applications to US and Canadian projects. What, what should we take away from, from this policy and how does it relate to companies? So what's really interesting about the Defense Production Act Title III
0: authorities and, you know, Talon uh, was fortunate enough to be selected for $20 million recently for um, exploration in Minnesota and Michigan uh, for nickel, um, is that there's really no limit on where that money can be deployed. So it can go anywhere in the supply chain. So it going go into exploration. It could go into uh, reprocessing old tailings uh, in a particularly, um, you know, important area for the Department of Defense. Um, it can go into uh, processing. So, Linus got um, a big uh, chunk out of the DPA uh, uh, Title III funding uh, for their uh, processing facility in Texas. Um, What's unique as well about the Defense Production Act funding is that it doesn't have to just be in the U.S. Um, Canada is uh, a place that is eligible for funding, and the president has asked Congress to add Australia to this eligibility. So I hope by the end of the year, um, Congress will add Australia, and then you'll be able to see... um, actually deployment of uh dpa title three funding in australia that could get again anything can be proposed you could uh talk about exploring you could talk about a gallium refinery added on to uh, aluminum uh, alumina uh manufacturing so um you know, it's it's a really wide open scope. Uh, whereas so much of the IRA or so much of the bipartisan infrastructure law is really focused on processing uh, DPA. Anything can be proposed if they think the material is important to them and they like the innovation of the approach. That's how they make decisions. And it's a big envelope of money. It's a, about a billion dollars.
1: Just to clarify two points there, Todd. These are grants, not loans, correct?
0: Correct. We're, we're, we've been talking about grants the whole time, or or tax credits. These yeah. are Not loans.
1: Yeah. And the the other detail I wanted to clarify there was when you say potential to come into Australia, does it still ha- have to be a U.S. company, or what's the sort of restrictions around that?
0: No
1: Australian project. So no, you know. no,
0: no, no. Uh, absolutely, doesn't have to be a U.S. company. Uh, it could be an Australian company. Just couldn't be a Chinese or Russian company.
2: Yeah. If I'm a, if I'm the MD of an ASX listed uh, critical minerals exploration or developer development project um, in Australia, and I'm listening to the interview, I gave you the layup trap. I'm being just... I'm being savvy. <laughs> uh, what do I What do I need to know? Like you know, I mean, you've uh, clearly uh, articu- articulated a um. Who do you get in the, contact the, the, with? the merit to to the department. Um, and 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 being the recipient of twenty million dollars funding for expiration, um, so what, what should a savvy ASXMD be doing doing right now?
0: Yeah, I think I think the biggest thing to do is to to look at the U.S. critical minerals list. That's basically the reference point of what the Department of Defense is going to consider to be in scope. So that's the first thing, and then the second thing is to think about you know, are there projects that you've always wanted to do that you may not have all been able to afford um, that would be able to be presented as increasing production, um, producing a byproduct that maybe hasn't been uh, economic to produce before um, or, or extract before, but, you know, with support from the U.S. government that you might be able to do that? Um You know, it's this idea of full value mining Um, instead of just going after the copper, you know, go after all the byproducts that generally occur with um, uh, copper because they're needed in these important defense systems or in other technology systems. Again, nobody's going to get rich off of, you know, producing gallium, but it might help your social license. It might help uh, your permitting pathway if you were seen as helping australia helping uh the united states to address security of supply in one of these what i call achilles heel medals where again it's not a big market but it's vitally important to critical systems um and so that's where i'd think about those sort of things and then you know the embassy is the australian embassy is the best in washington in terms of um helping Australian companies understand these programs, think about how to um, apply, and then go after it. So I would, I would spend uh, time with, um, you know, uh, the, you know, folks in, in Canberra, but then with the embassy, just figuring out what is the process of applying for this funding. Um, the DPA process is actually pretty simple. You write a white paper, and if you they like your white paper, they ask you to, um, you know, do a second follow up paper, that's a more deep dive. So it's it's not intimidating in terms of the process.
1: There's a couple other acts I want to touch on, Todd, and I just want to underline once more, how, how big the sort of dollar value. So we've got the bipartisan infrastructure law, which had $6 billion, to my understanding, earmarked for battery and critical materials supply chains, as well as another billion dollars earmarked for battery materials recycling. And then there's also the Department of Energy, the DOE loans program, which has $250 billion as a part of that program. And that has, in the past, made uh, loans. That that was the one that CIRA received, $102 million in, in a loan, a bit different to what we'd been previously discussing. I mean, it, it, it really makes the, the funding that the Australian government of, I think, half a billion dollars that they put forward for these sorts of things three or four months ago really... Almost pale in, in insignificance of those remaining laws. I think
0: the but, prime minister announced today another
1: two billion. I saw that uh, Yeah, JD's info is out of date. Um, he hasn't oh, read the news yet. There we go. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll be talking about that one soon. But of those of those remaining acts and laws, what what are the key details that that stand out in relevance to you know the the audience we're speaking to here, Todd?
0: Well, you know, I mean, you mentioned the, the LPO office, I mean, that that is a, a, a huge capability in a high interest rate environment to be able to get low interest rate loans to uh, build up the supply chain. That's a, a vital tool. Again, that's much more focused on doing that in the United States. Um, but you you mentioned Seurat, uh, Ford has gotten, a, a, I think, $3 billion loan from the LPO uh, office. Um, so it's a vital tool in this effort that of course, is going to be very hard to try to build up a supply chain that isn't hostage to China. And you know the Chinese keep you know reminding us of their their um, advantage here by, you know, putting in export controls on gallium germanium and then last week um, uh, on uh, graphite graphite, graphite. Yeah. so you know uh, they're, they're, they're reminding us that they've got this lead and i think that just makes the determination in washington and canberra and brussels and ottawa to double down and say okay great you know Uh, yes, it's going to be hard, but we're going to build up secure uh, supply chains in these um, battery materials. Um, It means more primary material, but it does also mean recycling to the point we talked about earlier. All of these things are infinitely recyclable and should be um, reused in future generations, future innovations of clean energy systems.
1: Yeah, the the point on recycling is fascinating because they have have these characteristics, but that is not commonplace as of yet. A lot of these, you know, battery packs and stuff have have finite lives, and then they're they're put out for waste. So that's something we should be really, really focusing on. And it's interesting to see where that funding and how that progresses.
0: It's so important. It's so important that we we, we that the mining industry also um, endorses the recycling industry, supports the development of the recycling industry. Uh, Mark Cudifani a couple of years ago was talking about how he thought of Anglo-American ultimately transitioning to a materials company and that he saw, you know, primary and recycling as the future business plan of the of the big majors. Um, you know, uh, Rio Tinto just recently got into uh, aluminum recycling in North America. Um, it's so important uh, that we also um, educate people that it. The scale of what we need to do to move to a uh, primarily clean energy system, it requires so much more minerals. Um, I think uh, Robert Freeling was saying that the other day that it's three times the copper that humans have produced ever um, is required for um, the, the energy transition. So, you know, it's a huge amount of scale. We can't recycle our way. Uh, to that. And I think that some people in the environmental community are really confronted by the the mineral intensity of the energy transition. And um, it's sort of their uh, don't look up moment um, that uh, they just want to pretend we can recycle our way to this. I'm not saying that recycling isn't important and future generations are absolutely going to have a circular capability. But right now we've got to figure out a way, how do we get more primary material um, into the system.
1: Let's get into the, into the implications of all these, you know, policies. So you touched on being a fan of what Rusty had said in the, in the interview we'd done last week. And, you know, the, the big sort of elephant in the room there is that prices, are you know, going to bifurcate, certain prices are going to go higher. You've, you've already touched on the fact that, um, this needs to happen. You agree this is happening, but from from your purview, have you sort of seen pockets where this is starting to happen? We've talked about it happening in a in a small way in low carbon intensive aluminium. Where are there perhaps commodities or areas you start to see this happening in sooner rather than later?
0: Yeah, I think it's happening in steel. I think it's happening in aluminium. Um, you know, um, you know, it, it's happened in the auto supply chain um, in copper for a long time in terms of the, um, content requirements of NAFTA required that certain value of the parts that went into a vehicle, um, uh, you know, had to be sourced from North American sources. So I used to go to, you know, Copper rolling mills where they had big stamps made in NAFTA on um, you know uh, various different copper parts because they had to keep accounting of those sort of things. Um, it was very thin uh, uh, premium, and and people didn't want to uh, have it be public that there was premium being paid. Um, but you know that's some of the things that you know you see sort of whispers of it and. Um, ultimately, uh, when you've got a carbon tax, or when you've got a customer that is basically trying to satisfy values consumers who really demand to know where something was produced, at what standard it was produced, you know that's going to become a, a lot more apparent, in my view. And I, I completely review, completely agree with 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 Rusty on this that the mining sector's got to be more more forthright about this and 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 demand it
2: yeah that was one of the, the takeaways from the chat with rusty for me was the i guess advocating for the responsibility not to fall down to the consumers demands but ad- advocating for more um external influence in the, in the matter the 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 i guess the looking at the whole um policy landscape a, a real clear implication to me is that prices are higher. <laughs> Like, yeah, the, the um, metals prices, you know, become higher. Things are scarce. You can't get supply in other jurisdictions. Everything, just prices go higher.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's absolutely possible. I mean, it, you know, there's plenty of other commodities that have been turned on their head. I mean, just look at coffee, what Howard Schultz did to coffee. I mean, you know, what, you know, people were paying 50 cents for, they're paying five bucks for now. Um, through a combination of different factors, uh, quality uh branding around fair trade, et cetera, um, and a and a more valuable product, but 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 um you know uh those differentiating factors are exactly what I think Rusty and I are talking about in provenance and um the standards under which something was produced. Mm.
2: If we pivot our attention to the implications for for um, with a bit of an Australian lens, so you mentioned the the Prime Minister visiting um, the US, hosted by Biden, the state dinner tomorrow night, your time. Um, I guess these conversations that we've had today, like how 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 high on the priority stack are are uh, are the, the the precise kind of you know policy dynamics and geopolitical factors that we've we've discussed in this conversation going to be for you know Biden and Albanese?
0: Well, I mean, if if you told me maybe ten years ago that Critical minerals policy would be front and center at numerous White House meetings of a Democratic president, um, or a, 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 you know, at the top of the agenda of a meeting between the Australian Prime Minister and an American Prime Minister. I, I don't think I would have believed you. Um, so it's really been um, you know during my career in this area. Um, a a rapid ascent of how important um, critical minerals policy is and the enormous amount of resources that governments are putting towards it. It's not just rhetoric. It's not thou shalt do this. It's also we want to do this and here are the resources to make it happen. That's the big difference for me.
1: There's one more implication that I I want to touch on, Todd. So it's these... The, the, the sort of notion that there's projects out there that were perhaps unlikely to get funded, now needing to be looked upon with with a new lens. Do you have a view on what the what the characteristics of the, the kind of projects that'll be the biggest beneficiaries of all these acts are? Well, we have
0: to see these rules come out. Um, uh, the ones to watch, as I said earlier, are the foreign entity of concern the Section 45, the X rules, final rules on Section um, 30D are the main ones to watch before the end of the year. And I think what 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 we'll be able to tell there, then, um, it's kind of like back in grade school when you played musical chairs. You know, um, uh, the teacher's taking some chairs out of the uh, middle of the room and uh, the music's slowing. Um, and for the battery manufacturers that believe that the $7,500 incentive is important to them, um, they're laser focused on how they're going to apply um, and keep that, that demand driver, uh, especially as, as, as um, vehicle purchases have slowed. So I, I really think that Q1 of next year, Q2 of next year is when you're going to see people react to these rules and make choices um and in some places uh there's only so much to get um so it's this function of some automakers and some battery makers and uh component makers are are going to be left
2: without a chair i want to just pin into that foreign any foreign entity of concern um provision a little bit more because um you, you described it in a way that kind of captured companies that were um, you know domiciled in in a foreign entity of concern so I guess I guess I know the the policy is still evolving but we've got a lot of um, lithium projects that investors are um, you know uh, are looking at that the project itself might be in Australia but there's a joint venture part joint venture arrangement between an Australian miner and uh, and a Chinese company Um like, like how does that, how does this, uh, the lithium that kind of is produced at that mine kind of flow through to these tax, um, incentives?
0: Well, I mean, first of all, you, you know, it's going to be, um, you know, a matter of what's the percentage of ownership that is the cutoff for the foreign entity of concern rules. Um, is it 20%? Is it 25%? Is it 50%? Is it 10%? Um, it's, it's sort of uh, really going to matter what that percentage is. I think there's some restructuring that people can do um, to get around that rule. Um, we've also heard about Chinese companies um, considering uh, moves to invest in free trade countries like Morocco and South Korea. Um, and these schemes you know, are being referred to in Washington as um, mineral laundering schemes, where basically they'd sort of try and hide in a free trade country, get the eligibility requirements, but still source lithium that's been processed in Xinjiang. And I think that that is not the spirit of law, and um, people that engage in that sort of sourcing strategy may get things cheaper. But in the end, if there's an audit, and then there's a clawback of the the, the tax credit because of that. Um, It'll be a, a, a pretty uh, unwise choice.
1: Todd, you've you've done a massive amount to help clear up all these bits of you know legislation and acts that we hear about just so much. You know, you can you can pull up the AFR or the Australian and you read about all these things almost every other day. So, really appreciate you coming on the show, helping clarify all of this. And you know, I'm I'm pretty confident the money miners will get a lot out of this. And in any case, I've got a tremendous amount from it. But you didn't even use your props.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, right here.
2: What have we
0: alphabet got? Soup. Alphabet, alphabet. I find alphabet soup. Alphabet I, soup. I could only find SpaghettiOs, which sound disgusting, but uh, it does say original A to Z. So uh, do your homework, find out about the alphabet soup, uh, dig into 45X, dig into uh, 30D, and uh, I think um, – uh, people that do their homework are going to find that um, it'll match up with some some pretty savvy investment strategies, even though I'm not giving investment advice.
1: Beautiful. Thanks for your time, Todd. How good was that, JD? That was awesome. And, you know, I've said it once, I'll, I'll say it again. I learned so much from Todd. Some of those, you know, the various sections of the axe, they are just, in my opinion, pretty, you know, underappreciated by the market at the moment. And, you know, if you're a company MD or you're a and another sort of decision maker, get on top of it, you know. Like sort of Todd said, you can you can speak with the right people, get out there, understand understand how it's relevant to you. I think the uh, the market over the, the coming period might start to really appreciate just how monumental this can be. So the thanks, policy,
2: yeah, I mean the policy prerogative is going to sort of, um, yeah, I- impact um, the companies we care about in in advance and. Um, I think it's important to be, be clued on to these dynamics ahead of time. So great conversation. Let's thank our partners, mate. Terra Capital, Anytime Exploration, JP Search, Cajol, and Smack. Legends. It.
1: Thanks a lot, guys. Hoodoo.
2: The information contained in this episode of Money of Mine is of general nature only. It does not take into account objective on any situation or needs of any particular person before making any investment. How appropriate the advice is to your objectives, financial situation and needs.